Hey, what's up, people? Welcome back to the Over in 8 Minutes podcast, episode 6 of season 2. This week, I'm joined by a really interesting guest of mine. He was the exact type of guest I wanted on before I knew what the exact type of guest was. This week, I'm joined by Rugby World author, Rugby World Cup author, co-host of the Performance Analysis podcast. He's probably on fire in terms of hot rugby tweets at the moment. He's doing the rounds. He's also just a cracking bloke I've had the pleasure of chatting to just before we came live on here. Sam Larner, how are you, sir? Welcome to the pod. I'm very nice. Uh, I'm very nice. We're having a go. <laughs> that's staying in. That's making a cap. That's, that's staying in. Absolutely. It's, it's so chic. The first first word I've ever said. I'm very well. Thank you, Sam. That was an incredibly nice uh, introduction. Right. Thank you. It's easy to be a nice introduction when people do incredible things. So, like, we've got you on. I gave you a quick brief. We like to get started with a nice little quick question. I've sacked off the original quick fires because everybody told me they were rubbish. So, we're in. Now we just start off with the main two. First one, what is your favourite bit of sports memorabilia that you own? Well, uh, there's a couple. So I actually got a um, Seattle Seawolves ball uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was over in, in Seattle. Nice. Um, I haven't I haven't got any um, uh, any jerseys. I I would love some. I'm, I'm I've lined some up for if I ever kind of bumping to people um but i haven't got any but i i would say if it's a probably cheesy answer but my first coaching gig was with a youth team in london and when i left after after a couple of years because i was moving moving out of london uh mm-hmm. they got me a uh, a shirt um with my name on and some pictures of uh stuff we won and uh, team pictures and, and whatnot so that is probably my favorite bit i'm not sure if that classifies as memorabilia but that's probably my favorite. I mean, it's short with history that you have personal attachment to. That's memorabilia in my book. That's yeah. quite frankly a great answer as well. Yeah, thank you. The guest, the guest will know it. You're getting exclusive because at this point it's not. Out, but the guest in it last week's was a newspaper that the chairman of Saint Mirren still had from his first game where he where they won the cup. So, like nice. any any and all questions, and even more obscure tend to be the better. Yeah. So, question two, following on from that, what is one bit of sports memorabilia that you don't own that you wish you did own? Well, I think there's a so it would be it would be a jersey. I think I think mm-hmm. um, you know I, I think as much as I love rugby, it might it might be my first love. It's right up there with with cycling, and I would say that uh, Gallant Thomas's yellow jersey is the first Welshman to win the tour. That would be up there, and ideally, it would be. You know, one of the ones from a, a wet stage where it's still got a bit of you know flex and mode and that kind of stuff on there. Mm-hmm. I think that would be that would be my ideal uh, bit of memorabilia. That that is a cracking answer there. A, a first a first Tour de France jersey from a Welsh winner, especially. I think I love what you said there about the mud as well because I would be so much for if it wasn't for the smell and the logistics yeah. of keeping it in a gra- in a glass box that would soon be filled with mold. I think everything should keep the mud and the dirt on it. Yeah, I mean, I haven't even factoring that yeah you might after about a year it would be probably just hideous but um <laughs> i'm assuming in my ideal world i'm assuming you just stick it in a, in a picture flame and it kind of stays like that yeah some some vacuum sealed contraption there must be there'll be some company working on it some framing company get in be. touch and we will give you free promo if you can do that for some of our shows <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah there has to be well, that's good. So we're going to dive in right in the deep end, Sam. I want to know, you gave a small indication there away about your older coaching career. and your, uh. Sam, I want to get right into the start. If yours is staying in, mine's will stay in, so I don't know why I'm <laughs> pretending like we're going to stop. 
<laughs> now I've got an excuse to keep both. Uh, so I want to go right back to the start. So you talked, you gave a bit away there about your young career when you were a coach cycling. How did you first come to find sport or did sport find you? Well, I'm not entirely sure. I, I know I, I was obsessed with it pretty much from being a kid. So uh, I played football as a kid. Uh, I cycled. Um, I played rugby, uh, not as a really young kid, but probably from about 12. Um, I uh, Actually, I played rugby league from like six. So I guess mm-hmm. I guess you play, play play rugby as a kid, um, and did a load of different kind of stuff, and was always watching sport, and we'd always try and go to matches and whatnot. Um, but I was never really any good at it, so I was never never any good at football. Um, and as a kid, I was not good at, at rugby either. Um, <laughs> I was, I guess, decent at stuff like ten- tennis and squash, um, and decent at cycling um and then i kind of gave up playing football and gave up playing rugby for a couple of years so i've never really gone back to playing football but i you know i've played five side and stuff as an adult um and what i found was that although i hadn't played football in like eight years when i first started back just playing five side at, at uni or just having like a kick around in the park i was much much better despite I mean, not good, but but significantly better than I was when I, when I gave up, despite having not done it. Um, and when I quit for playing rugby for a couple of years before I went to university, when I started back up again, I was, uh, again, much better than I was when I when I stopped. So I don't really know how that came to be, but I think um, uh, I think if if I just started back up and was still bad, I, I probably wouldn't be uh, anywhere where I am now because I think it would have just gone gone away and I could have focused on something else and probably wouldn't have had as much interest in, in rugby as I do now. <laughs> I think that's the same with everybody. I think if I think as the skill graduate you're speaking to the choir. So I'm an older brother and I've consistently watched my younger brothers join the sport I've played and I as a result have moved off for deciding I was not as good. Yeah. <laughs> and I couldn't stick around. So yeah. you're preaching to the choir when you think if I'm not as good I wouldn't have stuck around but you go back and think oh, I'm still alright at this. Yeah. So so would you say your main three your sort of so what people probably didn't know about you as much as they would about the rugby, you're at, you're quite involved in cycling and football then is what I gather. Well, football, not really, actually. So um, I, I like football. I I used to kind of go and watch it fairly regularly. And I'll, I'll obviously like watch World Cups and, and whatnot. But I'm a, I've got a sports group with a couple of my mates uh, who I used to work with. And they one of them was a massive Liverpool fan, one massive Arsenal, one massive Tottenham fan. And frequently they will post about some player who got <laughs> signed for like 80 million pounds so i'll have to i've got no idea who they are and um <laughs> i did what i think pretty much everyone does which is played football manager as a kid uh and <laughs> still would i haven't played for a couple of years but still would um but cycling yeah i'm a um that that's right up there with with rugby uh as in terms of my favorite sports and to be honest it's probably probably points it's jumped ahead um mm-hmm. i mean it's it's like it's more it, i quite like the the culture of 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 cycling and i think rugby's changing but certainly when i started at, at university i never I played for the university team but um when i started for the local club at university i was less keen on the whole culture around it than i was about the and still am about the other culture around cycling 
Mm-hmm. And it's a very it's an acquired taste as rugby culture. I think it is. I think if you're made for it, it is perfect. I cannot recommend it enough. But I can see why people find it not intimidating but off-putting as well because it's, it's it's just a boisterous atmosphere. It's a boisterous sport with a boisterous atmosphere. I think is the problem. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I don't mind. I, I certainly don't mind it, and I've, I've kind of grown into it to an extent. But I don't really drink, and um, it's as so much of it revolves around that. Certainly, used it used to, and I actually found that when I when I started playing club rugby, when I was in the third and second team, I, I enjoyed it less um, mm. because there was it was more that was more the focus, um, but. When I went up to the women's team, you could you, you saw that actually it was it was pretty great because no people weren't there to drink; they were just there to play to play rugby. But like I said, I've got I'm not I've got no objection to to people enjoying themselves in whichever way. But I guess for me, the way it's moved, which is perhaps a bit further away from that, um, or at least not being the week in week out, you have to get drunk and have to do all this kind of stuff. That certainly helped me um, enjoy it more. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's very. I'd, I'd probably say I'm along a similar elk in that way. But getting getting drunk's nice, but sometimes there's Saturdays where I want to get home early. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, tell me more about the cycling upbringing. Then, so, were you like, were you part of clubs and things like that, or was it just a pure passion sport of I like watching this and I like hitting my bike on the weekends? Or pretty much. So, I I probably watched my first one. But first, I, I, I assume. Sorry, I assume we're yeah. talking road cycling, not track cycling. Uh, so Bowden mountain biking. Um, yeah. I, I I really like track cycling. I, it's yeah, it's a bit difficult to get into if you didn't start as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I watched the first two of Lansing probably '97 um, when I was five, and then I kept watching it. Uh, well, actually, I didn't because it was on Channel Four. It was it was really difficult to get any coverage. Like the one thing that probably people don't understand is that. Certainly, if you were in the early two thousands, try and watch cycling was was impossible. Basically, like unless you paid for Eurosport, um, you couldn't get couldn't get anywhere. Um, so you might get like um, ITV coverage of the tour. Certainly, later than the two thousands, where you get like an hour each night, but it would be thirty five minutes with all the ad breaks, and then uh, you might get a couple of hours on the weekend of it actually live. Um, but there was no other races, so obviously there's there's other things in the Tour of France, but you wouldn't you wouldn't get to watch any of them. Um, so I would just read magazines every month and then watch the Tour every year, and then that was it for like probably nine or ten years. Um, wow. And that probably uh, strikes a chord with quite a lot of other people who who were big fans but couldn't afford Eurosport. Um, and then. And then obviously once all the modern stuff's coming, like GCN and, and that kind of thing, where it's fairly accessible and very cheap to, to watch and you can watch everything you want. It's, I mean, I love it. I think it's great. But you, know, you do almost feel like that old person going, if you're if you're 12 and a cycling fan now, it's, you just you, know, you don't know you're born with, with what it used to be like. But, um, but yeah, I used to, used to ride a lot. So um used to go mountain biking every Sunday and, um, you know, in, in the summer and the in weeknights go around and I joined your club um, briefly when I was a kid um, and then did some racing not very well but did a bit of racing and then when I went to university in London obviously London's not a great place to, to ride a bike uh, and so I packed it in 
And then to be honest, I didn't really get back into it. I was a big fan of watching it still, but I didn't get back into doing it um, for about eight, eight or nine years um, when I was down in Sussex, which is a really nice place to like bike. So um, I started up again because I was just like, I was playing a bit of rugby, but I just got, you know, I, got, I kind of just got incredibly unfit. And so I started back up and then um, just kept going on that, really, and joined another club when I moved back up north to near Manchester, which I'm still a member of. So, um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't done any racing since, but um, there's a lot of kind of, you know, my dad's a cyclist and my brother used to be a cyclist, used to race, and um, his uh, fiance is a cyclist as well. So there's quite quite a lot of us about who who, who do it. That's good. It sounds it sounds like a real community sport as well. And I really want to, are you hyping onto me? I talk I talk about motor racing a lot and a lot of that is the same in terms of the exposure it now gets in the past couple of years. Um, I, tr- I try not to be the elitist fan, but I'm kind of like you. I'm like, oh, if you didn't watch Formula One before Drive to Survive, you don't know that much really. But at yeah. the end of the day, like you said, the growing of a sport should always be the most paramount. So if it's got more fans, then that's only a good thing. I Absolutely. I, yeah. I genuinely do think that about cycling. That it's, it's, I'm, I love the fact that it's growing. Um, but there's there's still that nagging bit in my head that I remember the days before Mark Cavendish when there was no British people who would race. Yeah. Uh, I actually remember there was a before the tour came to London, 2007, um, Cycle Sport, which sadly no longer exists, did a um, uh, a kind of a preview of of the two stages in London, well, one in London yeah. and one in Kent, and um, they picked out the people, the British largest who might be in there. And they just didn't have enough, so they included a a guy who was Italian but had lived in Reading for uh, a couple of years, and like he was he was in, in there because it, you know otherwise it would have been like three or four people. Um, and no one was winning anything back then. That was uh, Cavendish based that year, but um, it wasn't until the next year that he, he won anything. So it really was like completely unheard of as a sport and. No one was really following it, and it's fantastic that that so many people do now because it, first of all, it just makes it so much easier to to watch and to follow. But uh, yeah, it's it's impossible not to have that little nagging bit of going, yeah. Well, I kind of remember it when it was uh, when it was hard and when I was kind of like one of few people who would have been able to talk to you about this. Um, so yeah, <laughs> it's impossible to get away from that. But generally, it's I'm very positive that it's, it's growing like it has. Amazing. Yep. As long as sports are going up, I'm happy. That's all I want to see. So fitting nicely, I want to talk, and I think the cycling will really click, like it'll send a lot of light bulbs on for the listeners here who know you but may not know your story. So the first overall topic I want to talk about is your outlook on sport, because it is very stats focused, which is very cycling eccentric. But the are you a fan of American sport? I'm not just talking MLR, but your baseball's American because your outlook on sport is very American in yeah. terms of stats focused. Absolutely. I am, yeah. So I uh I'm a I'd say I'm a very big fan of uh the NFL. Um in that I kind of probably watch in the season maybe two or three games a week. Mm-hmm. Um baseball I'm a fan of I find it very difficult to follow in the UK um, just because there's 162 games yeah. in a season and you know there are ways of watching it it's, it's quite easy to, to watch but just actually trying to keep up with the storylines is, is really difficult uh, when I was over in the US recently though I probably went to maybe five games in two weeks so I'm, right. I'm, I'm a big fan if I, if I lived in the US I would be a 
you know, I'd be there a lot. Um, basketball, I've never got into. I, I, I like the idea of it, and um, I've tried at various points. My old boss used to be a, uh, like, was a very good basketball player, and I asked her to explain, you know, why I should get into it. And she was very passionate about it. She made a good, good explanation. I thought, okay, I'm going to give it a go. But I just couldn't couldn't really get there. Um, and ice hockey, I like, but just to the point of I play some video games and I'll watch it if it's on. But again, it's, it's it, there's not a huge amount of it um, to watch over here. Um, but yeah, I, I do. I, I think I got into those sports. Well, I guess I, I've got into pretty much at various points over the years. I've got into pretty much every single sport. Um, mm-hmm. And those ones definitely chimed because of the the stats element. Um, although I must admit, I was never I was never very good at maths or anything like that. Um, it was only when I read Moneyball, um, which I think is like incredibly cliche, doesn't answer, but that was kind of what started me off on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I read that and I was like, okay, I this is fascinating, and this could be doing could be doing rugby, um, and obviously people had come to that conclusion before but um that was what kicked it off and so once i read that then i started getting to like save metrics and the baseball stats um and then i had a i had an interest in american football since i was really young so i remember reading a, a book in the school library when i was probably nine um about american football and just reading that back to back uh multiple multiple times um I'd, I'd love to find that book again. I've got no recollection of who was the publisher or anything, but it was like a little tiny hardback American football book. But um, so that's where I in, started. In, in, in the comments, any hope, small American yeah. football book, you know, people write it down and we'll see if we can find it. Yeah, it was probably something like Dorian Kingsley one, but this would be 90, uh, 99, maybe, was it? Right. Maybe a bit later. But yeah, it was, it was back then. Um, and I was, I just got obsessed with it over that, over that book. Um, and then, yeah, stuff like cricket as well, which I'm, I'm big into. Um, I like the, the stats around that. Um, there's a fascinating book I was reading by Neil Lehman, I think it is. I think it's Neil. I think it's Lehman. Right. But, um, which is about um, stats in, in cricket, which is kind of along the lines of uh, Moneyball, I guess, but a bit more um i um so yeah lesser lesser story uh nathan lehman is a, is a guy who wrote right. it um but yeah so i think i've always had that take on it i've always had that stats first approach to it okay that's it's so fascinating to me because i've as i was telling you before i came on air i'm motorsport for rugby's the rugby's the one i'm known for but it's like the forbidden love is motorsport. Like I'll always have that on in the corner, out the corner of my eye. Yeah, I'm fresh. I'm fresh off Le Mans weekend, so I'm absolutely oh, nice. knackered. But yeah, yeah. So I've done a 24-hour stint. Or I think I technically had a three-hour involuntary nap when I couldn't keep my eyes open. But we got to there. So I'm very much a stat focused as well. Like I was telling you before you come out, you can watch a motor race via a timing screen and know what's happening without actually having to see the cars. So when I hear these stats and things like you say in your approach to sport and how the stats affect not only your perception of the sport but how you choose to monitor the sport and on a macro level almost because it fluctuates so much if you can go into such precise detail but you can also almost determine a league purely on stats which i find so interesting um 
And as, as we spoke, you use rugby. So I want to tell people a bit more about your job before we then take the next step. So you're currently an author for Rugby World Mag, so, but you're also the co-host of the Performance Analysis podcast. Yeah. So for my listeners that maybe haven't had the chance to listen to your podcast or seen the work you do, because would you technically say your job title is performance analyst or statistical analysis? Yeah, I guess it varies a bit. So mm-hmm. I guess um, I do uh, freelance stuff for uh, that would be, I guess, would classify me as a performance analyst. Um, there's also like recruitment analysis stuff, which is pretty much the same as performance analysis, but you're obviously looking for specific players for teams to sign. Um, and then the journalism really was, uh, the best way of getting promoting that kind of stuff. Like I, I really like journalism. I think it's fantastic. I, I enjoy the, mm-hmm. the stuff I do. Um, but it was always a, like a, you know, I, I felt people should know more about this kind of stuff and it felt like that was the best way of doing it rather than becoming a performance analyst full time mm-hmm. well so i'm gonna completely interject the usual podcast situations happened of here's the order of you want your podcast to go and within three questions i'm flipping that over and ignoring it so in terms of when you said you do freelance recruitment analysis work because i find this so fascinating because this was what i would consider a dream job if i had the skill to do it which is a club comes to you and goes we want a winger that does this this and this we need them to have this much skill go and find us the player and then you have to go here's the proof that this player does what they does i want them. that sounds like an incredible job to have it's, how does that how does that process work so from you getting the first contact to the, the whole situation yeah so um it, it, it's funny because um rugby is much less uh, uh well i guess sophisticated than it might appear um mm-hmm. so um having talked to players and seeing it from the inside you kind of think it's not that different to a a decent saturday kind of not professional not even semi-professional but yeah a good club size on a saturday who might get 200 fans out it's it's not vastly different to that um and so typically what tends to happen is clubs will have performance analysts um and there will never be enough of them um, and they'll always be asked to do too much. So what their jobs tend to be is very specific and not often changing that much, which is tends to be why a lot of them kind of burn out and, and give it up after, um, you know, five to 10 years. Um, and so what they tend to do is they will be focused on one very specific thing. And so they'll be looking at opposition defenses, opposition attack, um, and then looking at their own play, and then looking at uh, training sessions and break, break them down, all this kind of stuff. Um, but they won't often have much time to go ahead and look at um, uh, recruitment analysis and look at players that they might well bring in for the next year. So what tends to happen is that um, you'll get uh, agents who will go to clubs that they think their players will be well suited for and say, you know, we've got player X, player Y, player Z, here's what they're, what they're worth, do you fancy them? Uh, and maybe maybe include something about um, what they can offer, um, you know, some stats around and that kind of thing. But often not, like fairly often that won't be that won't be in there. Um, right. And so what teams are increasingly doing is that they're um, is that they're asking, um, or they're getting people from externally to do this, or they're hiring um, an additional analyst. 
and promoting the senior analyst to be the recruitment analyst or someone who they feel will be best suited for the job. So there's a long winged little bit, but basically um, from the start, so you'll get a club will say, we're looking for, uh, well, this was a recent one I had, we're looking for the big lock who's not going to cost much money. And so then you think, okay, um, let's eliminate obviously everyone who's not locks and then let's eliminate everyone who's not a big lock. Um, so basically if you're not, if you're less than six, four, um, and less than maybe 17, 18 stone, uh, whatever that is in kilograms, then you, you kind of just get wiped off and you're left with, with those people. Um, then you can just miss anyone who you think is going to be expensive. So for example, within that category of, of lock, um, you'll get some big names. Uh, you know, for example, you get Hector Beffwood falling to that into that grouping, and obviously he's not going to go. And he's not going to go for a less money. So you take him out, um, and then you'd be left with with everyone who who would be a big lock. Um, it costs about that that amount of money. Um, so there, then I, I think that's fairly lacking in skill. But then the actual skill part of it is. Um, looking at them and breaking down what they do and, and how good they are. Um, and actually, this is one of the fascinating bits is that although I, I obviously focus a lot on, on data, I do think that data is crucial because if you if you don't have data, um, then you, you, you can't really tell anything. So we're so uh, fallible and we're so in, unable to, um, to uh, correct the biases so you know, we if we see someone do something amazing early in the game, it's likely that um, we're going to spend the rest of the game picking out the amazing things that he's doing after that point. Um, right. Whereas if we see see someone do something really bad at the start, it might be that we ignore the next few few good things he does because we've gone, oh, he's he's a guy who misses tackles, or he's a guy who uh, misplaces passes, or whatever it might be. Um, and you can actually see that in the data. So um, I asked the question today on Twitter about whether you'd rather have a, a, kind of a, a winger who's a constant six out of ten, um, who never mm-hmm. never gets too good, never gets too bad, uh, just steady, or someone who's sometimes a four out of ten and sometimes who someone who's sometimes a ten out of ten, um, like a boom and bust type player. Yeah. Uh, and it was interesting because some of the responses named players. You know, in, I just, I just, if you name players, I thought that was a bit harsh. So like, yeah, nice. exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sadly one of those things where basically either one it almost sounds like a negative. I don't think it yeah. is. I think I, I often I, I have a lot of time for nuance. I think that if you're the six out of ten rugby player, you can make a that's a very good living. I was going to say that, that's a professional player, isn't it? That's a, you're always going to have a job. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. No one's going to going to look past you because you, you can just consistently deliver. Um, and equally, if you're someone who puts out 10 out of 10 performances, that's unbelievable. Like, if you think what a 10 out of 10 performance is, a performance that could not be improved upon, how many of them do you see a season? It's, it's very, very few. Um, I was say, if, if you could guarantee prime Jonah Lomu for four games a season, that's still four games a season you're probably going to win, isn't it? So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And if you think what four out of 10 is, is, is it's just a bit below average, it's a bit kind of gaff. Yeah. It's like a winger didn't really do much, which, you know, that's not the end of the world. Um, but you got people getting named who 
don't actually fit, fit in those in, in those categories if you look at the stats, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting, but also completely fits with what's logical because if you say, um, you know, you got this one player, he's played twenty two games this season, you've now got in your head to go back through every single one of those twenty two, which you probably didn't watch, and remember when he had a good game, when he had a bad game, um, and if he was a kind of player who just had consistently fine games, he's probably not going to stick out in your mind. Um, and if you just happen to watch the bad games of his, but not the good games, then you're going to think he's bad. If you just happen to watch the last game, which was where he was amazing, then you're going to think he's he's amazing. And so you need the data to kind of say, okay, well, you, you think that it's a little bit nuanced, it's a little bit different, and here's what the data says. But on the flip side, you can't just rely on the data. Um, for one guy recently, I was doing some analysis for a particular player, and one of my points to him was that uh, if you look at your statistics, there's too many games where you don't do anything productive with the ball. You know, you you kind of go missing in, in some of these in some of these games. And so we looked at the video to break this down, and what we found was that although those games, you know, he wasn't hugely productive with the ball. He didn't have any opportunities, and what he was actually doing was when he got the ball, he was being, um, he was turning it into a positive. So you know, he might have got the ball just off a terrible pass that made him stop in his tracks, and instead of going backwards, he stepped in, made a yard, and went down, which doesn't really appear in the stats, or if it does appear, it appears to be negative. But actually, um, that is a useful thing to have in that situation where you're not getting the opportunity. Doing something like that with the ball is is a is a big positive. So you need the boat, you need the two of them, you need the video and the and the data to actually um, to actually combine. Uh, but then I, I know I've got wildly sidetracked here. But to go back to the to the what happens, so you'll get the players that you think um, deserve a, a shot. It might be just one, it might be a few, um, with a write up about why you think they're good and some stats supporting that. Uh, maybe some video clips. I quite like to include a few video clips in there. Um, and then, essentially, in my case, often um, you hear kind of a month or two down the line that they're getting signed, or they've decided to go with someone else, or someone else came on the market who was uh, who was a better fit, who wasn't available at the time, um, or they've decided to wait till next year. Or in the case of some Welsh clubs, the the budgets haven't been We've gone bust. And, yeah. yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah the, the budgets have gone and there's literally no money for even if there's great players that, that appear so um so that's typically how it how it goes about oh, that's that's so interesting i also liked you a little bit as well you said um players almost come to you so it's like there's kind of like a reverse for it as well it's a player going i need to prove my worth instead of the club trying to prove a player's worth yeah, so there's so, a lot so of does that. that does that work through the company you work with as well, or is that people come to you on a purely freelance basis? Yeah, so they come. So yeah, they come on a freelance freelance basis. So basically, I have a a, a day job which isn't any of this kind of stuff. It's in, yeah. it's in um, advertising, but then the <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. So it's it's you know it's still fun, but it's not uh, it's not quite the same. Um, so I do um, I do that, but then the freelance stuff is. Players or agents will come to me and say, um, "Yeah, we're looking for uh, a new contract, or we're going to be moving next season. Um, how do we? You know, what's the best way that we can convince teams of our performances? Um, or sometimes it's just a player saying, um, how do I get better? And what does the what does the data say about that?' So that that's the other side of things. 
That sounds like what would be one of my favourite things that I would not class as work, but would be work. So if I could ever find a way to monetize that, that would be grand. <laughs> that yeah, sounds it, really good fun, that. that it is. Uh, like, I do feel, I, I feel very lucky that people, like I said before we came on, I feel it, it's, it's bizarre that people uh, come to me. It's, it's, you still get the massive uh, imposter syndrome, but, uh, uh, which hasn't really shown any signs of going away, but <laughs> it's still, uh, it is fun. I, I get the same thing when people listen to this. Even I, Before you were coming on, because we were a bit delayed, I was just checking the analytics. And it still baffles me that people listen to this podcast. So I know exactly how you feel. Yeah, yeah. I, not saying say that nobody's going to listen to your episode when this goes live. But no, <laughs> no, 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 I, it still baffles me that people do. I, I agree. I think um, uh, I don't think that goes away, though. You know, When you speak to people who are incredibly famous, who you look up to, they still feel the same which is depressing i guess it's comforting and depressing in equal ways but uh yeah it is it is pretty depressing it's it's so baffling i mean i still get excited when i get like 20 likes on a personal instagram post never mind anything for the podcast page yeah <laughs> got 20 people from school still care what i'm doing in my life that's good to know <laughs> so, yeah i know the feeling yeah <laughs> we're all just we're all just kids in our room at the end of the day that's all that's right true. That is true. <laughs> God, that was that was a bit of a grounding sentence there. <laughs> bring back bring back the positives. Um so we spoke about your American stylish approach and the the way the American sports almost I'd say facilitate themselves in kind of a way. It's mm. cuz it's kind of what they base a lot of their budgets on, isn't it? So Yeah. I wrote down here for rugby specifically, but I'm scrapping that cuz there's more to life than rugby than some people believe. Uh what would what would you like to see like European sports almost bring in from the Americas? I think because I maintain that the MLR has the potential to become the biggest rugby cup in the world with adopting what everybody else around them is doing. Because for the for the visual watchers as well as the audio listeners, there is a New England Free Jacks top behind me. Shout out Alex and the team from season one. Still got the shirt repping. Um, I think the draft is not only a massive viewer spectacle in American sports, but in terms of promoting kids to stick through uni, to then go—I mean, obviously, I know the American, like the bigger sports, pulled the kids out in like second year of uni and they finish their degrees when they're thirty-six or something like that. But still, still a degree at the end of the day doesn't matter what year you got it. What do you think European sports should be looking to integrate from American sports in terms of stats, stats-based performance analysis, watching? Yeah, a nice, so easy, I, light, hard question there for you. <laughs> please, yeah, fix Euro- please fix European sport in the next twenty-five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's difficult because I think the key thing that American sports do, um, well, what they do well is that they have proper analysis where they actually are breaking down what's happening, um, and you'll have someone who speaks um, and doesn't really care whether you're keeping up it's like it's on you to keep up and mm-hmm. so it, it when you first start watching american football um you'll you might you, you get kind of go oh, i don't know what blitz is uh i don't know what man coverage is i don't know what four three is i don't know what nickel corner is all that kind of stuff but nowadays you just go on wikipedia and if there's a sentence yeah. that you don't, don't make doesn't make sense because of one word you'll pick it up or you can read your book or you can read twitter or yeah whatever mm-hmm. um and so the expectation is He's going to talk. I, obviously, inevitably, is a he? Uh, I think that's probably changing. But they're going to talk, and um, you're going to just be carried along. And, and at some point, you either get understanding it from the start, or you're going to be 
tell you're longing at some point you're going to get it which i think actually cricket does well um where the analysis talks about you know belly in depth things like spin rates and seam positions and mm-hmm. uh, swing and all this kind of stuff which probably the average viewer before they listened didn't know what they were um and yeah. rather than spending time going a seam position is this and this is why it matters they talk about it in a way that you think okay i'm gonna have a quick look on what seam position means and now i'll know it for next time whereas what frustrates me about the six nations for example is there's this idea that everyone watching is basically an idiot who unless I, they're... I know exactly what you mean as well i yeah. can picture it as well yeah unless you're completely led in hand down the path you just wouldn't have any idea what's what's going on which obviously just isn't the case for most people most people um if if they're watching the six nations they're going to be interested enough that they're going to want to hear a bit more about what you're saying um and i also think that's what uh that's what things like american football when they've been on the bbc for example um get wrong is that they try and make it about the celebrities and um about the big hits and all this kind of stuff which might keep you interested for the game but probably won't make you an actual fan long term because you go okay well i guess a a three-hour compilation of big hits is fine but i'm not sure i'm gonna watch the second one or the third one what you need in all these situations is to actually understand the game because once you understand what's going on in rugby um or football or cricket or whatever the game becomes infinitely more interesting and more enjoyable um Mm -hmm. and I'd say that to anyone, just watch a, um, you know, watch a, any sport that you know nothing about. So, for example, I, I don't know anything about um, lacrosse. So yeah. I could go on YouTube, I could put a lacrosse game on, I'll put it on mute, and I guarantee I won't be watching it in 50 minutes because there's nothing keeping me there, there's nothing engaging me, I don't know what's going on. Um, and that wouldn't change if they started showing me celebrities and and all this kind of stuff what i need is to understand the game understand why players are doing what they're doing and you know what's actually happening because once i've got that then i'm investing it and i can understand it on a deeper level so that's what that's the main thing that i want to see is um analysts talking um about the game in a way that isn't the absolute lowest common denominator kind of let's just talk in cliches let's absolutely just yeah, so anyone can, can understand no matter how hard they're trying. Like I think mm-hmm. people deserve and will would appreciate being uh, led a little bit and being asked to kind of think for themselves a little bit. Um, and you can see that in films as well. Like people think that the best way to make money on a film is to make it incredibly stupid and just blockbuster entertainment. But if you look at the films that have done well over the years, they tend to be, you know, if not deep thinkers, they at least they they're not just stupid blockbusters. Um, yeah. yeah, stuff like the Dark Knight and um, the uh, the spinning top one. What's that called? Uh, Inception. Inception. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, they're, they're maybe they're not the smart, most intelligent thing in the world, but they're they're obviously yeah they they do the quite a little bit of thinking. But even even on your point there, you talk nicely about it's on your own is to keep up. Even the quote unquote stupid blockbusters that because now Marvel go it's like, oh, you didn't understand this because you didn't watch our money making Disney spin offs which is yeah. a brilliant money-making tactic by them, but they're still looking at the same place going, well, that's on you that you didn't keep up. We're not going to spend 20 minutes of our film explaining what happened. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and, and it's the same with you know, those big uh, TV series that do really well, is that they don't justify themselves every single time they're on. 
Like, yeah. if, if the fact is, if most people are watching, if they think that most people just happening across the Six Nations on the BBC and, and don't care at all about it, but, you know, they're just using it as entertainment for two hours or whatever, then, then surely that's also true of, like, when Peaky Blinders first started on the BBC. Like, most people aren't there for it. They, it just happens to be on and they're sat down watching it. But it doesn't spend its whole time leading people and appealing to the stupidest person. Um, and I don't think I don't think rugby does itself any favors. And actually, if you look at something like the Olympics, which people love, they don't spend the whole time when it's gymnastics going, um, "Oh, this this is how a judge works," and here's a celebrity fan um, who's going to talk to us about for thirty seconds about why they love gymnastics. They mm-hmm. they get intelligent people who've been gymnasts before um, or at least know a lot about it. Um, and they, you watch people flip around, and they say that was a six point two difficulty, and the the three sixty rushing spin or whatever it is, it was great. And you think, yep, fine. I don't know. You know I'm happy to kind of be carried along and, and understand that. Um, and you know, if it was on more often, people would follow it as well. So uh, I think that's that's what I'd like to see. I, I like the idea of the draft. Um, I feel like. English rugby, especially, has probably jumped too far along for that yeah. now to be a, a conceivable strategy. But I, I love the idea of it. I, I think what the MLR needs to do is just, like you said, is kind of be, be its own, uh, be its own league, and not to just follow the the path of of others and fall into the same pitfalls that they did. Um, so yeah, that, that's why that's what I kind of I'm looking forward to and seeing how they develop. No, I, I completely agree, especially on that last point about the MLR, because it's it's very rare where you have a gold nugget project and you have so many prime examples of not only what to do, but what not to do in the vicinity. And there's so many interactions. Like, I'm pretty sure George Killebrew, the MLR commissioner, must know somebody that works in NFL head office and just to yeah. go, does this work or not every time he has like a, like a brainchild idea. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think um, I think that's the key because you've seen so many leagues start and fail because they try and be the same, the same thing, and some also try and be so weirdly different. Like their only selling point is that they're different to what's come before. Whereas the MLR is a functioning league first and foremost. Like it's got good teams, it's got good players, it's got a good spread across the country. It's in the places where people care about rugby. And that's the basis, and mm-hmm. that's what you absolutely need. Um, but then, it's, on top of that, it's got all the all the good stuff that makes it actually unique. Um, and so, I think that's where it could it could uh, progress. I think when you look at something like um, you know the hundred, for example, um, in the mm-hmm. UK, I think it was it obviously was a success last year. But um, I'm sure that was probably more to do with the fact it was on free to air tv and yeah i could not yeah. agree more like free yeah. to free to air bumps up everything i think it's amazing so many things don't do free to air for launches of products yeah yeah and well that's what the mlr did wasn't it at the start they put yeah. it all on facebook and so you could watch whatever game game you wanted um it's still free now isn't it on the rugby network is it free on the rugby app? or am i paying a subscription uh, i don't know i'm paying a subscription yeah it might be free i, I, don't know, I think it's free yeah <laughs> I mean, I guess it's a slightly different one in that it's pushed through. Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's you yeah. but you're not going to stumble. You're not going to stumble across it. Yeah, yeah, 
Um, but still, like you say, it, it, as long as it's there for people to watch for free, it's, it, it's worth it. Um, and so I think I think the MLR is going to go well. I, I think they've had, obviously, this disappointing end to the season with the Giltinis and Gilgonis kind of... Yeah. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, man. What a shame. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's kind of the lack of information as well. I know they've put out some news about it, but yeah. it's, uh, it's, that's unfortunate. But I, I, to be honest, I don't think many people will care that much. I think the MLR has found a foothold. And I would be surprised if there's many British European fans who, Go to the US around the time that the MLR's on. Who aren't making a, uh, you know, a, a beeline for an MLR game? Because mm-hmm. I mean, if they're not, they definitely should be. No, I agree. I agree with that. Uh, so what are we talking? We're talking about how we're solving Eastern or we're solving European sports. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we talked about the draft. We got that in. In terms of the statistics and. So the scouting of I, I keep I try not to keep bringing it back to the NFL because it's so universal. I remember when I was actually at a baseball game, I was at the Dodgers game. We managed to pick up tickets on the day, and yeah. we ended up getting a seat right behind the uh, the umpire. Oh wow! And, yeah, yeah. And it was so it's like everything in LA is expensive, but for some reason these tickets were like fifteen dollars because I think we booked them like an hour before. Yeah. What do they call what do they call kickoff? <laughs> first pitch. First pitch. Ceremony. Yeah. Yeah. Ceremony. The act of throwing the first pitch. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we got them. And then I remember I was sat around and there was this one, it's like talking about having a guy who knew it. There was this lovely old guy sat in front of us, me and my brother. And he said, um, he was like, and we, he obviously heard us talking. And as you can imagine, a Scottish accent travels in the heart of yeah. LA. So he was like, you guys aren't from here. <laughs> if you have any questions, let me know and I'll try and explain. I was like, ah. And then I was looking around me and there was all these people with stopwatches and clipboards. So I just happened on the show and I was like, who are all these people? And he was like, uh, he works for the San Francisco Giants. He works for the Cubs. He works for the Red Sox. He works for the Yankees. And there was all these guys, and they were stopwatch, like they were timing the pitch and how things like that and yeah. writing notes on everything. And it's like, in terms of the pure analysis of how they break down players, could we see that transcend into rugby? I'm sure there probably is stuff behind the scenes, but down to the level of depth, you know, of, this guy turns his head three times to the right and looks at third base and he throws a fastball. Whereas when he throws a, whatever they call the, like like an upriser, for example, just something that's like, it goes, he looks at second base and occasionally ties his left shoe or some extremism yeah. like that. Well, I think it's fascinating because when I see a lot of, like there's been loads of, uh, I guess, newer uh, analysts on Twitter since I've been doing it. And, you know, they're all brilliant. They bring kind of newer skills um, into it. But um, sometimes, especially early on when they start, um, a few of them have like reached out and asked me to look at stuff that they've been doing, doing for clubs and, and whatnot. Um, and what tends to happen is that you, you read and you go, that is absolutely you know f- fantastic and you obviously know what you're doing. It's sensational. But you've packed in so much information that I guarantee you that the coaches go look at that and go, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not reading that. I'm not reading that. Yeah, <laughs> and it, part of that is that rugby's mindset is quite old, and so you will like, end up with a lot of coaches who are coaching in very high levels who have no interest in analysis. Really, like they do it because it, they tick a box and they have to do it, but they're not looking at scouting reports on every single player uh, at the start of the week, and they're not really even looking at kind of 
tendencies of the opposition or, or anything like that. What they might be doing is looking at their own team and using video to point out where they went wrong or look at the opposition and doing stuff like that. But it's very unlikely that they're doing anything more complicated than that. Um, mm. And what you've got to remember as well is as much as that doesn't make sense, it does make sense that if you're a player then someone says to you, okay, when the winger um, steps off his right foot, um, he always steps back again. Or, okay. um, you know, when the winger's in his 22, uh, or, or, you know, the, the winger's easier, better coming onto the ball than he is going away from it, or he drifts through the backfield, or whatever. You've got then got to say, well, you've got to identify that, and then you've got to remember it, and then you've got to do something about it. So, you know, if, if I were a 10, and I was saying... Um, and you you see this if you go and watch a game and you stand close to the pitch or if you watched a game during COVID when there wasn't much obviously crowd noise so you could hear the players you hear the uh, fly off saying you know run a switch or loop or miss or whatever and the defence all know what's happening but there's a big difference between knowing what's happening and actually stopping it um, mm-hmm. so for example I wrote an article about um, the Seawolves and, and their kicking um uh, kind of options uh, for the yeah. for W World today, and they were uh, I expect to uh, Alatimu the um, fly half, and he was saying that uh, they saw that I, lo- the... I love watching him play. Sorry, sorry I love watching yeah. him play. Sorry, he's, he's Jacks, but Bo- Bodine Waka, I love you, but I do like <laughs> watching this. <laughs> yeah, he is he is absolutely fascinating um, and very talented. Uh, but he was talking about how they identified that Houston. Uh, drop players deep um, quickly when when Seattle were attacking in their own 22. Um, right. And so he, they found that there was potentially space between the defensive line and the um, defensive backfield. So you think, okay, well, that's, that's great. Up that's, and under, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, yeah. that's kind of fairly immediate analysis that you can actually do something about. But then you've got to remember, well, actually, you've got to see what's ahead of you. You've got to make sure that that's actually happened. Because it could be that that's what they always do, but then a winger just got lazy and was like, oh, our fullback will deal with that. So he's doing the long position for you. So you chip it through and he picks it up and he scores. So you've got to make sure that they're doing what you actually think they're doing. And then you've got to be able to do the make the kick. Um, and even then, it's still a huge element of luck that if the kick's going to hit the ground at all, if that's what you planned, you've got to make sure that, or you just got to hope that the ball doesn't bounce in some stupid way that ends up in the opposition's hand. So, I often see that where where younger analysts will give so much information, and you just think to them, just go and play, go and play five side football, and learn everything about the person you're marking, and then immediately as soon as they get the ball, try and remember what it is that that they do, um, <laughs> and it's just you, you know you can't, and so you need to, you, the key is to send them out there with a, sh- a small amount of information, um, and then also repetition. So like if you're the Sea Wolves and you see that Houston drop back then just repeat that in training. Set yourself up with tw- with line outs in your own 22, play to the Tang, and then the Tang sees the picture that he's going to see on, on Saturday, and maybe he kicks it, maybe he kicks it deep, maybe he passes it, because um, obviously there's still loads of ways to sting that particular cat, depending on, even if you know that they drop deep, it doesn't mean you always have to kick it. Um, but then it becomes that chess game, because if you know you can just chip it over, well, what do Houston start doing? Do they start dropping back? And if they start dropping back, do you keep kicking because you're now in your own 22 and there's a higher risk that you're going to give the ball away? So um, 
it becomes this game of chess where really at that point it's it's out it's out of your hands. You've just got to hope that you've shown them enough different pictures throughout the week that they can see what's happening. Um, but I, I think that analysis is both massively undervalued in that a lot of coaching staff and, and clubs don't fund it well enough because they don't necessarily see the value. And I say that's still the case now, even though we're, for, for many people, we're like well into this kind of data-driven era. And I, I see a lot of people on Twitter saying that plays too robotic because ev- everything's being analysed, but it's not even remotely the case that we're at that stage. No. Um, but it's also too highly rated in that certain people on Twitter think that, you know, uh, you can just pick up something the opposition is doing and then and then target it. And it's just not that simple. Like, there, there's very few things where you, you're guaranteed to get anything from it. And also, even if you spot a weakness in a lying out or the lying out defence or whatever, really the best thing that you're hoping for is just a, a, you know, a, a game line success, um, which is pretty small fry for when you consider the kind of the, the efforts that's gone into it. No, I couldn't agree with you more, especially because on your whole analysis of the Seattle breakdown, I read the article as well. Hmm. And from a coaching perspective, what you told there effectively was, first, like you said, first of all, you've got to notice that's what they do. Secondly, you've then got to play that style. Then you've got to acknowledge when they've caught on to the fact you're playing that style. And then you have to have a new game plan for once they start playing against that style. So yeah, like you said, you've almost have four game plans there already. And you, exactly. like you said, like you said, so it's not a case of going chalk and cheese, rinse, repeat, we'll win the game. It's not a case of going, this guy knows nothing. We will keep doing whatever we've done every week, regardless. Because the opposition yeah. have probably looked at you as well. Exactly. I, I, and even if even if you, even if they do the same thing. So I, I think a good example would be Wales versus George in the World Cup in 2019, where the first two line outs came off, um, our first two tries came off line outs, where Wales um, attacked the 10 kind of down the, the channel between the first defenders and the back of the line out and then popped the ball inside to the winger. Um, and both of them was, were tries. And I was watching this in the, where I was in, over in Japan for working on for the World Cup website. And I was thinking, okay, that's that looks like something that they've targeted because it's an unusual move to run a 10, have a 10 clash with a late um, wing clash. And so I look back and, and Georgia played Scotland the, the week before, or well, not the week before, but you know, in the last warm-up yeah. game. And Georgia had set up with the hooker at the back of the line out as a defensive option. Um, and he hadn't had the speed to be able to cover the cross, but Scotland hadn't attacked that um, particular area. And when you think about, like, it's like the butterfly wings. So if Scotland had attacked that particular area, um, Georgia would have realised it was a weakness and probably would have showed up for the game. And so then what would have happened? Well, maybe Wales couldn't have attacked that way, but actually maybe it opens up a different attack because you've got a hooker at the back who's so interested in getting out that he's now forgotten mm-hmm. his, his first job. So maybe instead of attacking that seam, you've done a, uh, you've done a fake maul and then um, peel off and, and go for that. that op- yeah. uh, have the hole where the hookers would have been where they not sprinting out to cover the tank. So um, when you think, when you see that, you know, you see the hooker is defending there. You think, yeah, okay, this is on. We're going to run our move where we run on the inside. But even at that point, so many things can happen. So the 10 was running kind of on the inside shoulder of, of the Georgian tank. But what happens if the Georgian tank just 
thinks that the hooker's his inside man, so he lets him go through. Um, or what happens if the hooker actually can get off the line at quick enough and so blocks that option? So um, you can identify these things and you can see them and you can you can give your team a, a, a head start and give them a, a push forwards, but it's not guaranteed that, that there's going to be uh, success at the end of it. But it's also the fact that any two teams playing each other, even Wales versus Georgia, um, they're not massively mismatched. Um, and, you know, if if Wales got too early their cards, Georgia could have won that game. And if Wales just came out playing absolutely rubbish and Georgia were really good, Georgia could have won that game. So it's about those fine margins, but it is a game where it's very fine margins. And so it makes sense to, to try and exploit, you know, a 2% uh, improvement. And I, I, it's on the fine margin. There's a thing, and you'll appreciate this as a site, like the cycling background as well. I think it might have been teams. It was either Team Sky's coach or it was Team Britain's coach at the Olympics for the track cycling. Said, "I'm never going to find that one thing that makes us ten seconds faster, but I will find ten things that make us one second faster. So I might yeah. as well spend my time looking for them instead of going for this miracle of. I think he, I think he used some extremism, but funny. He said something like, "Um." Yeah, well, I'm trying to find the way around the rules to strap rockets to the backs of my cyclists. So I'll try and find the other stuff that works. Exactly, and and that's I think that's the key stuff is that people, and this is what I kind of mean with the with the it's both both uh, overrating and underrated is that people think that there might be one magic thing where where you look at them and go, oh, we unlock we unlock this team by doing X, mm. which isn't the case. But they forget that you can go well if we do a bit of this, we do a bit of that, we plan in the week for this inevitability then it can give you that small little advantage um and certainly i think the biggest advantage is probably with with player recruitment because ultimately once you've got a player if he's 28 you're probably not going to be improving him that much you might be you might be making him a little bit better you might be stopping him from you know decreasing ability but realistically you're not going to be improving him vastly um and so what you've got to hope is that you pick the right person um, who fits your style, who who works there, and so I think that's where we we undulate the impact of um, of analysis because that is potentially huge if you're the team and you you pick up the right players. Wow, no, I can I couldn't agree more. And you've you know, you've, you've convinced me. If I ever own a rugby <laughs> team, I'll be they'll be going. Oh, we need to spend money on this player. I'll be like, scrap that. We're getting four we're getting four recruitment analysis. <laughs> and then yeah, hopefully, I mean, it'd be great. It'd be great to get more yeah. more recruitment analysis in, in the game. Well, I I know exactly who I'm calling. And speaking <laughs> of that, the, there was actually a segment in that I think goes nice to hear. So, Sam, the reason that you came to my attention and how stuff like this started was your tweets started doing the rounds on rugby Twitter, and they were starting to bridge across. And then as we've been discussing forward, we saw, I saw how these could branch into other sports. In terms of when you said how, I, I kind of labeled the section as free agent signings, but it's not really that. So the first tweet years that did the round was, here's the list of people that do not have a contract and there is no reason on God, other deities are available, Greens <laughs> Earth, why they should not have a club. How do you genuinely believe a team could build a title winning team off of like free agent money ball type players um n- no sadly all right uh, <laughs> yeah so so i think the, the problem is is that everyone on that list i genuinely believe should be uh should be part of the club 
and mm-hmm. uh, should be professional in one of the top leagues or or Pro D two, which obviously second place. Yeah, that's, that's that's better than most pro leagues in other exactly, countries. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they should be up there. Um, however, the the fact is, if you look at if you look at Moneyball as an example, um, the reason why the Oakland A's had to do what they did was because they had no cash, mm-hmm. um, and so no team would would no team would and no team should try and build a, a team based purely on those kind of Moneyball principles. Because what you should do if you're a if you're in a, a team with loads of cash is you should wait for someone uh, cheaper but more intelligent to find the advantage and then you continue your big advantage of being incredibly wealthy and then <laughs> in two years once they prove the advantage works you just steal it off them because you can see what they're doing so that's essentially what happened with with moneyball is that the opening days had a couple of years where they had this big advantage or not big advantage but they had an advantage by being more intelligent um but they still couldn't beat the yankees because the yankees had you know twice and a bit more money than they did uh, and so all the Yankees did was they said, okay, you're picking that player because he's undervalued, whereas I'm happy play, paying twice the value of this p- player because he's already better than yours. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of it with, with rugby. Whereas if you look at it, like, for example, Morgan Ames, uh, the lock from... Uh, Bay, was he Bayon? I forget where he was again. Or, or the lock, maybe. The, the one that I um, suggested, kind of the big four like uh, viking style uh right, okay. mm-hmm. um he would be he, he's a he's a great pickup like i i bet he would go cheap uh, he's still young he's got experience in pro g2 like he he's a very good player he's quick he's he's everything that you'd look for in a lock and pretty much every team in professional rugby should be looking at him to to pick him up um however uh if Evan exabeth is available you should pick him up because <laughs> yeah. you know, he is he is better. Um, and so that's where the advantage of just having a ton of cash comes in is that you don't need to kind of scrabble around trying to find bargains. You just chuck money at, 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 the, at the problem and hope it works. And actually, going back to just something like Team Sky and now Ineos, is that a lot was made of the marginal gains. Um, mm-hmm. And... I hundred percent think that that was happening. I think that they were getting big gains, or not? You know, they were getting marginal gains from those things they were doing, from having their own mattresses and um, you know all the kind of cleaning stuff that went into it, and all those kind of little fine margins. But undeniably, the biggest margin they had was being exceptionally wealthy and being able to pick up the best uh, climber in the in the world and then pay the best supporting climber for him. And then pay the best supporting flat rider, and you know that was what the 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 biggest game was. Um, yeah, they weren't winning because of the marginal gains; they might be winning by more, but they were winning because they had a huge amount of cash that they were willing to float the problem. Um, mm-hmm. And you see that with you know you see what that with Leinster, like a team like um, Newcastle, for example, who you know, don't have as as much cash. Um, the best way for them to compete with Leinster is not to try and get the same players as Langston, try and play the same game plan. Um, it's to find those hidden gems. But if you're Langston, just go and sign whoever you want, really. And, South, and... South Africans. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, same, same with the French teams. Like, yeah, yeah the, if you're the small one, go and try and find the, the hidden gems. But if you're if you're too long, clearly the best thing they did was sign Habana, 
sign Wilkinson, sign yeah, whoever those that the, they had when they won the um uh the the hiking up. So yeah, that's I find that so interesting that it's still there is still such this advocate for these free agent signings, and they're almost like um they're almost like a would you say they're kind of not not a plug a gap because nobody's a plug a gap in a pro rugby team like it's like when people like oh he's shit and i was like i wish i was good enough to be considered shit at pro rugby yeah (laughs) sort of things um but they're kind of you you still still need them in a team even you said like the financially wealthy ones still want these club players that will stick around for cheaper than superstars and go we know we can give you an eighth of what we're giving that guy and you'll stick here for 10 years and we never have to worry about having a sub like a sub 12 ever again because <laughs> we know you're going to yeah. do the job in the lv cup and then do it when the internationals go away exactly i actually think that um that you know obviously even super rich teams don't have a bottomless pit of money at some point you know at some point they become like the cheaper teams because they're going well we need to maximize our investment so who's the cheapest but best person we can buy uh, mm-hmm. just it just happens that that's not their starter that's their third choice or fourth choice whereas for the cheap team that's that's the starter that they're trying to pick up um so definitely that everyone in that list i think well maybe everyone on that list a lot of people on that list i would look at if i were you know um leicester or salisons um or leinster because you know why wouldn't you want to pick up someone who was really good who was also cheap um and if you look at some of the best signings of the uh, over the seasons, it's not often that uh, someone is signed who is um, who on a massive price tag who's worth who's worth their money. So you know there are good, there are obviously good players, and, and you look at someone like Finn Russell who went to last thing, he was yeah, he still is very good and, and worth the money probably that they're paying him. Um, but you also get with loads of people who are incredibly expensive. Um, who aren't really delivering where there's the, the people that uh, the players that people love are those cheap ones who are there all 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 the time um who fill a gap who are successful who are good players um and so when you look on the on like club forums for example very rarely are they are they praising the the expensive guys they're they're praising the the you know the second str- string lock who stepped up that season and is now a starter because mm-hmm. ultimately that's kind of who we all um we all want to 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 get that people love a homegrown story as well nothing nothing does well like a homegrown story so yeah exactly so i want to brief on nicely now so we we discussed that your official unofficial role if we had to pin you to a thing would be recruitment performance analyst even though yeah. you have so many hats and you do an incredible job to all of them in terms of authors um want to go back into the job description how do you go about becoming a recruitment analyst because like i said even i find it because in my free time i sit and watch rugby and effectively analyze players not to the in-depth description of a person paid for it but effectively every sports fan is a fundamental very bare minimum level recruitment and performance analyst yeah so how would how do you go about becoming a performance analyst? like is there a set quota is there a here's the list of LinkedIn skills that you have to present in a really toss potty way to get noticed on LinkedIn. Yeah, it, it, it's difficult. So the problem is, in a lot of ways, the problem is that there's not enough of that. So mm-hmm. if you look at something like like baseball, for example, there's a great website called Fangraphs, um, which right. is a baseball stats website. 
Um, and a load of people from there have since been hired by clubs because what they do is they go, um, here's what I think and here's the data to back it up. Um, and they haven't really got a uh, an agenda, for example, that you know someone will say, I want to write about why this picture is now better because they have added a curveball that they didn't have last season. Here's the analysis and here's all the stats and here's video and here's um, uh, graphs showing speed of pitch and spin rate and all this kind of stuff. And so they, they write about that kind of stuff and then people read it or don't read it and, and clubs are going, well, that's quite interesting. We, we didn't know about that. And, you know, how is this person finding stuff that we didn't know about? And then over time they, they get hired when they write enough of this God, that, that, that must be quite hot under the collar for their actual recruit, their performance analysts when they see something like that. Yeah, we well, don't know exactly. about that. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, and, and to be honest, I think the same thing is starting to happen in, in rugby. So that that's kind of what happened for me is that I wrote about stuff and did this data analysis and, and looked at stuff in a, I guess a uh, a unique and way that I'd not seen before, but I'd seen in other sports. Um, and then you start to get people following you, um, and then you start to get people asking you for your opinion on stuff, um, and then you realise that actually clubs aren't really doing this too much in the background. Um, and then you're, you, you, you can kind of turn that into something, um, you know, potentially to be monetized or or to jump into that job if that's what what you'd like to do. Um, but it's very interesting. Because I, you know, when I, I've gone to schools on uh, at various points, because I know teachers or kind of people who run schools and and talk to uh, talk to them about um, journalism. And uh, the first thing I, I I always say is that if you want to do it, just start writing. Like just today, start a blog or um, start a YouTube channel or whatever. Just just but just start writing stuff and start presenting and start doing the job that you want to do because. For years, I wrote a cycling blog that got no one reading it, and I did. I, I did see that in your sort of biopic for the Rugby World Mag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No, no one, no one made it. No one cared. Um, and understandably, I didn't really offer anything that they hadn't already seen. Um, and then eventually, one article went vaguely viral, kind of uh, a thousand uh, readers for it. Um, and then I just interview people and but said to them I get uh, about 30,000 uh, readers a month which wasn't true but I thought well a thousand a day is basically extrapolates to to 30,000. Um, I'm right I'm writing a note for <laughs> extrapolate yeah. by 30 and that is your monthly reader. <laughs> exactly yeah take take the, the day that's got had the most and then go from that um, and, and so so I did that and they obviously were keen and they kind of I mean never got to that number but they were you know, it grew because they were on it and people, I was speaking to people. Um, and what it does is when you've, when you're ready to actually do something more professional, you can show them that you've, you've done all that. And so it's like that Chinese proverb or Japanese proverb or Italian proverb, whatever it is about that the, the best time to plant a tree was 30 years ago. And the next best time is, is now. Like if you sat there thinking, oh, I really want to, do some analysis or I want to become an analyst or I want to become an author or whatever it is, then you've got two options. You either, or you've got three options. You either work out a way of going back in time 10 years ago and <laughs> starting it. And cause if I, I reckon if I could take the stuff I know and the skills I've got now 
and go back 15 years you could become famous off that because people just didn't know any of that kind of stuff um and if i took it forward 15 years i would be a complete idiot because i wouldn't know i wouldn't know anything about what the modern day analyst is doing 15 years from now um but you know just start doing something um uh, or just sit there and keep moaning or keep saying that you 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 want to do it but um and that's fine like absolutely fine there's loads of stuff i've i've said i wish i could do that and then just never followed up with but um if you do want to do it then just just give it a go and and write something you know start a blog or start a youtube channel and and just go because if you look at someone like um like squidge rugby that's basically i was was thinking squidge squidge is a perfect example yeah yeah exactly yeah He, he just started something um and it's all worked out really and it's worked out because he's he knows what he's doing and he's got um passion for it and he's got skill um but he's just plugged away at something um for a long time before he got to now and i think that's what the problem is is a lot of people see now and go oh well that's i just want to be there and don't see that it's actually quite frustrating for a long long time you know you might have a thousand uh followers on twitter and go this is this is great but then you realise that no one's really leading your stuff and you'll post something you think is absolutely fascinating that no one cares about. And over the time, you just keep chipping away and, and it'll come. Um, and also you need luck and you need people kind of supporting you. But uh, yeah, eventually it will it, it will come if you're, if you're good at it and, and you, you keep persisting. I, that's a very, I, took a, I take a lot of, I, I don't take a lot of, I share a lot of, I resonate with that a lot. We'll get the we'll get the right word eventually. It's a good, good thing I decided to do a talking podcast, and not a blog. That must that's much better. Um, yeah, I resonate with that a lot because there was a, I was like that a lot for myself. I thought when I did this, it's a complete sidetrack that people don't really get. But so when I first started doing this, I think I sat on the first episode. Ironically, I sat on the first episode for so long. Callum Circa, who I had the first episode recorded with, had a whole episode with him talking about his time at Wasps. He then got released by Wasps and moved to Cornish Pirates. So I spent so long sat on it worrying about it that. I had to end up recording a new episode with him because yeah. I just went, well, I can't, I can't have my friend get released from a club and then broadcast two hours of him talking about how much he's enjoyed his time at Wasps. <laughs> so yeah, I then had to start and I was, and I remember I produced the first one and then this is, there, there's a roundabout story to this at the end. Don't worry, listeners, we'll get there eventually. Uh, and I remember producing the first one with George Taylor and I remember watching the one back with George and I still, I owe George Taylor about two cases of beer in terms of pints i went at a pub because i asked him so many shit questions because i was so nervous and worrying about what the perception of me in this podcast was going to be that i i basically did what i didn't want to happen on the media stage which was asking really dull questions that had a media trained answer response yeah so then when everybody came back to me and went oh that podcast wasn't great this wasn't good that wasn't i was like yeah, but at the same time, the weight of stress that went off my shoulders when I eventually just did the thing I wanted to do was unbelievable. Yeah. And I eventually just put it out there and I went, okay, well, I've now learned more from the fact that that was terrible and I've put it out there than I ever have from just sitting there watching it every day going, oh, this is so bad. I'm so nervous. This is so bad. So yeah. I promise So I promise myself is I will get George back on one day. <laughs> we will do a proper podcast. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree that it's... it's... The, the amount of stuff that I would, I mean, I, I don't often go back and re, re-look at stuff, but when I have, I've kind of gone, oh, I didn't understand that really, and I've written about something there where I've jumped to a conclusion that isn't isn't heralded or um, 
you know, it doesn't actually fit. And you think, well, you know, the, the best thing is, is you, you gave it a crack. And mm-hmm. you're only now looking back going, oh, that was embarrassing. Oh, that wasn't very good. But, um, you know, it's, it's far worse to be the person going, you know, the person standing on the edge who's never giving it a go, who's saying, oh, it's rubbish. Because one of the things I get frustrated about on, on Twitter quite a bit is that um, you'll post something about, you know, something about analysis or something about a player or whatever. And uh, someone will go, why don't, you, why don't you do this thing? Or why don't you just do that instead? Or that's not very interesting. You should look at this. And I always just think, well, just do it then. Go on. Yeah. Like, it's, I'm it's busy, you do enough. it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm doing like, this thing, you do it. <laughs> yeah, like, like I, you know, I'm not the only person who, who can do this. Like, go and, go and have a crack. Um, Let me introduce you to Microsoft Excel. You can make great spreadsheets on this thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. You can, you can record a video off your TV on your phone and uh break down something like you know go ahead that'd be great um because I, I think that uh similar to actually full circle in terms of you know cycling being unwatchable when i was young like i love the fact that there's loads of analysis going on on, on twitter now because it, i mean it certainly does feed into your uh into the um you know i don't know what i'm doing type thing when you see some of the brilliant people on twitter but you learn something all the time and it's incredibly entertaining. I'm very glad that there's people like that in the world. Um, Cause the reason I got into this is because I wanted to know more about it. And so the fact that there's loads of people who know all about it now, um, who are uh, educating me and, and showing me what's what is yeah, fantastic. No, I couldn't agree. And especially like, I love the competition aspect of almost life. And then like you said, so you talk about how there's more recruitment analysis and stuff and performance analysis. And like you said, it's almost made you like step up your game. So yeah. I remember having this, another podcast where I'm actually about to shout out Bruce Aitchison and the Happiness is podcast. Yeah. People are going to get the, I'm going to have to start putting like hashtag ad at the bottom for it for Bruce because people think he's got a deal. So uh, I remember because me, him and the producer of both our podcasts, Sean Phelan, are all in a group chat on WhatsApp. And we were just, what, I said WhatsApp, we were there, WhatsApp. Uh, <laughs> we were discussing about how, um, like podcast is becoming a very saturated almost sort of media now lockdown was the king of podcasts because everybody had a computer and a webcam and somebody went why have you chosen to do such a saturated thing or why do you have so why do you choose that has so much competition and it's like you said it's like all it does is improve my knowledge of what to do give me more ideas and it also encourages me to have to raise my quality of podcast like i can't just go oh sam what's your favorite color sam it's really cool that you did this tweet like you have to you have to almost go into a depth and have three podcasts ready for one yeah to go i need to produce a good hour or a good hour 20 minutes 80 minutes of content yeah so i think it only increases for everyone because then the listener gets a better podcast as well so well, absolutely and you sh- you know you need to be kind of proud of what you've done and if you if you've done something uh and you think that's 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 good i'm, I'm pleased i did that uh, and then someone else does something better sometimes you just go well they're better like you know, yeah i, I think exactly. there's nothing part. wrong with getting beat by a good team so why would you <laughs> exactly yeah and, and that, that's definitely one of the things i've i've realized growing up which you know when i was young every time my team lost it was down to the refereeing it was down to the opposition cheating and whatnot and i still play craig bear every day of my life for world cup so <laughs> oh god yeah i mean yeah yeah understandable uh i think with uh sorry craig uh, please come on the podcast <laughs> That'd be good. I'd be good to have him on here. Uh, 
when, when I go to stadiums and you know you got grown men kind of moaning at the ref, and you just think sometimes you just got to go. They played well. Like you yeah. know, when when the opposition scores a great try, I used to be moaning and whatnot, and I see people getting out. And I just you know often turn to my dad if he's there and just be like. That was good, wasn't it? Like, that was yeah. good, yeah. What else you meant to say? <laughs> like, you know, they just got a really good try, sadly. Uh, which also comes across on, on Twitter, like, you know, I'm Welsh, but if I say anything nice about um, England, I inevitably get piled on by uh, Welsh people who... <laughs> You're a traitor English. to your country. <laughs> exactly. Well, most of them don't even know that I'm Welsh, so they just they just <laughs> leap on. Or like, yes, anything... I have an exclusive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's just it's just like... It is ridiculous. You're just thinking, well, that try was good. Whether it was scored by someone from England or someone from Wales or, God forbid, someone from Scotland. Like, yeah, that was, hey, a, hey. That was a good try. Hey. <laughs> when you score one, it'll, you, you know, you'll understand. But it was... Uh... Look, I'm in control of the edit here. That's getting yeah. cut. <laughs> quite like, quite like. I respect that. <laughs> no, I'll keep it in. You, you can have one. You came on the pod. You can have one, one cheap shot. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, this, this sets us up nicely for this is about to go in terms of us disagreeing. So the big, the big question when I told I like to do a little sort of straw poll with people I know. There's yeah. insider tip. There's about seven or eight people that know who's coming on the podcast before it goes out, yeah. and I always give them the question. We're going. If you were talking to this person, what questions would you ask them to get yeah. good feedback? And every single one of them hit me with going. But data doesn't tell everything. You've still got to see them with their eyes, which you did stumble upon a bit quickly right at the start, but that was an hour ago. So I think the guests, the listeners might have forgot. So we're good. Um, The eyes versus the stats debate. There is always that it factor of, I want to see that guy play with my own eyes or I have seen him play with my own eyes. I don't care if your stats tell me he's a four out of 10 winger week in, week out. I know he's a game changer. Yeah. So we're going to start off. Is that a true debate, or is that people trying to defend themselves? Yeah, I think sadly for the um, for the uh, controversy level of this, your your mates are absolutely right. Like, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, the, the thing with please stats, join us uh, next week for episode yeah. seven of the. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the thing with, with stats are that they they don't tell us everything. And anyone who thinks that they do it, it, it is delusional. So, right. for example, if you believe that. Um, possession if you look at possession stats and you plotted teams based on how much possession they have you would get incredibly skewed yeah and you ain't well that the top team are the best and the bottom team the worst you would get almost exactly the inverse of the of the league because salisings and leicester they're two of the lowest possession teams in the league um x is one of the top possession teams in the league um and and so you you kind of see that actually really it's basically doesn't tell us anything really that um and so what often happens in this debate is that people say um something like oh uh, meters gained is completely pointless it's a useless stat and you think well it's not a completely useless stat it's 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 got value in if it's used correctly um Mm -hmm. and it's like uh it's like any it's like any stat is is essentially useless unless it's put into some kind of context and used correctly um and that's what i think a lot of you know, there was that big debate earlier this year about how useless the Six Nations pundits were and, uh, and that actually we wanted a bit more analysis. And what a lot of people came back who weren't on the, anal- on the uh, analysis side of things say was, oh, we just we don't want people 
spending 10 minutes going X made 10 meters, Y made 52 meters, Z made four clean breaks. And you think, no, no one wants that. I mean, you know, if, if I'm incredibly yeah. statsy, that's absolutely the opposite of what I want because it just turns people off. What I want is them to take something that the stats or the video is, is showing and then dig into it during halftime. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, you can look at stats and go, um, you know, Gloucester made 30 kicks in that one half. And then you can look on the video and go, well, why are they kicking? What is it that they're getting out of this? Has it been successful? Have the opposition returned the kicks um, successfully when they when they have kicked them away? Um, and that's a much more interesting debate than just going, uh, Gloucester made 30 kicks. Over yeah. to you. Like, that. that's not interesting. Um, but on the flip side, and just to defend stats, um, the, the kind of the <laughs> just to keep myself in a job. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and luckily, I, 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 I also because I, I think you have to do a lot of the video stuff as well because, like I say, it, 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 stats don't tell you everything. Um, but yeah, on the flip side, the idea that you, if you you know a player, if a player's good, you'll know. It just isn't isn't true. So. If you see an exceptional player, you'll know that they're exceptional. And yeah. um, if you see a really bad player, you'll know that they're really bad. But there exists the vast majority of in this, you know, bell curve in the I was middle. Gonna say, it's like the extremities of a bell curve. Yeah, exactly. You can tell those extremes, but whatever it is, 67.5%, is it? Or no, 72.5%, whatever. Whatever yeah. sits in the middle of the bell curve, they're all the players that you're now trying to differentiate between. And you just can't. You can't do that, you know, and, and it's why we all moan about the um, teams of the season and players of the season, all those kind of awards, because <laughs> we're we're hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people who all watched a lot of games and disagree because you know maybe we support one team or um, maybe we uh, like our wingers small and value speed over power, and so we think one player is better than another, um, and what usually happens is if you think a player is good, you'll see that in the stats. Like if there's something that you, you value, that will be in the stats, whether that is just as simple as try scoring um, or whether it's something like uh, work rate. You know, if you think someone works hard, if you think someone does a load of stuff, then surely that has to appear in the stats. If it doesn't appear in the stats, then you know, why not? They don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like if you think someone makes loads of tackles, then great. They'll be at the top of the tackle chart. And if they're not, then you've probably got it wrong because um, yeah, they, they have to they have to be there. So it has to all work in conjunction, um, I think, which is which is the, the nuanced, probably slightly boring answer, but it is th- it is true. I think it's so. I I mean, I was going to play devil's advocate, but I couldn't agree with you more on that point about everything in conjunction because I still believe the most cursed stat in the world is try scorer. Because yeah. the amount of tries you watch where it's not to just shit on wingers for an hour as a former front row club member, but the amount of wingers I've seen score a try by going, still on the touch, like going, thank you, try. And then it's like, this guy's got 14 tries this season. It's like, that guy's moved a combined 10 metres this season. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's there's a skill to being the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. But it is, well, this is one of the reasons why I try to create try equivalence is that, um, you know, if you run 80 metres uh, yeah. and dart past five players and make a line break, um, and then just as you get into the line, the, the fullback drifts in front of you, so you pass it off to your fly half who's running support, you get nothing. 
yeah. you don't you don't get like a point two of a try or whatever. You, you get zero tries. So for the end of the season, if you and obviously rugby's a relatively small sample. So if you're if you're that winger and you play twelve games, it's perfectly possible that that might happen to you a few times, um, or maybe playing a certain way where you drop deep and so every time you get the ball, you make a great amazing run through defences but ultimately get tackled and then someone else scores that could well happen throughout a season so someone looks at the at the try uh lists and go oh, you only got four tries that's not very good whereas your mate got 12 tries and they forget that you know you I've, I've got the try score. assist or whatever it is for each of his 12 tries yeah yeah exactly um and so so yeah it's it's there's more to it than no one stat is getting captured everything um and there's more to it than usually goals or, or or tries. Is there? So I've gotten like so. One of my big arguments in debate was: Do you remember? I know you're not much of a football fan. Do you remember the famous Newcastle goal against Norwich? Uh, not Newcastle, the Arsenal goal against Norwich, where it was about seven or eight different passes. And oh, vaguely. And then it like because there was a big joke, you know, like it, I think somebody put it on Pornhub and went eleven Londoners. Uh, do horrible things to a Norwich football club. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it was like, um, so everybody prayed, like, and then, so it was this beautiful work movement. I think it's like seven different people passed the ball. Yeah. And obviously the only two stats that came out of it was this guy got the assist and this guy got the uh, got the goal. Yeah. So if you were to read it on, and it was like, yeah, so if you read it on paper, it read uh, seven short passes. He passed it across the box to this guy, which if you were to play it in your head, you just saw it as some guy just passed it across the goal and the other guy hit it in. Yeah. So is there like a measure of stat analysis performance for the build up play to that, to those two guys, the assistant, the goal scorer, try scorer? Yeah. So it's interesting football because basically their approach is just being to keep going backwards, really. So <laughs> yeah. they have uh, assists and then they have, uh, I forget what it's called now, but it's basically if you assist the assister, you get, mm. you get marked for that. Um, and expected goals works in a similar way in that it kind of takes where you are where you make a shot and what the likelihood of scoring from that position is uh historically um mm -hmm. and it gives you a, a particular expected goal for that but you also get expected assists which is um where you move the ball to uh what is the expected chance of that goal being scored from where you move the ball to mm -hmm. um which works quite well but then there's other things like uh i forget it's a German term. I think it's packing, maybe, which is when you pass, how many defenders you take out of the game uh, or defensive right. players you take out of the game with a pass. So football's kind of working backwards like that to try and work out, try and give credit for other people's involvement in the in the game. Um, rugby, it's, it's, it's hard because, obviously, in football, it's relatively simple. It's still far more compli complicated than American sports, but you've got someone who... Um, who pass the ball and there's not then going to be a luck where theoretically the three people who join the luck also have a part to play in the in the goal but how would you ever go about attributing a certain percentage of the goal uh, sorry a certain percentage of the try to three of the people who entered the luck um, yeah. whereas in football you've got a pass and you can kind of go well, okay we beat four defenders so we'll assign a value to that um, but those things are difficult. They're, they're they're very difficult, and they're not easy to to get on large scale. Uh, you know, to find in large scale, and, and ultimately the reason why goals 
uh, and assists are so popular is because they're very easy to to measure. Um, okay. Same in same in rugby. Yeah, reason why a tackle is so is so popular is because it's pretty easy to measure who made you tackle. Oh. That's I find that so interesting in terms of how what is effectively similar stats get weight. It's kind of like I'm I'm on, I'm in a big NFT. Um, delve at the moment because I'm sick of hearing it and not knowing about it. So yeah. it's, it's kind of like a non-fungible token in it. This thing is the same thing, but they don't equate it to each other at all. Like yeah. this outperforms that so massively. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to be honest, it's not maybe a huge value if you're a fan. Like you might be interested in it. I, I certainly would be, but it's not hugely valuable. But what is hugely valuable is if you're the club and you think, well, actually, I could sign this player. But his expected goals tells me that he's potentially getting lucky and he's converting yeah. more of these opportunities. And so if I get him, I can't expect necessarily he's going to reproduce that same ability. And am I actually overpaying for them? Because I'm probably going to pay a premium for someone who's scored a lot of goals. But expected goals tells me he's he's getting lucky. So maybe I'll go for someone who's going to be cheaper, who has get, is getting unlucky uh, and potentially could outperform him. There's a there's a book I'll need to find. So I I, I assume you're familiar with the story of Brentford, you know, and how they changed their whole. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was gonna say that must be like gospel to your your neck of the woods. But so, like, I think that is so incredible. I loved what you said there about as a fan, it's not interesting, but to the club of the the team you support, it is so vital. Which I th- find really funny to go. A fan goes, I don't care about that, even though it makes my club exponentially better more well-off could potentially lead to financial stability if we take this approach. But to the fan, it's it's not important in the there and now, which yeah. I find so incredible that fans don't put as much attention into it. Or is, to go back to the expected goals, do you remember him, guy that hosts soccer side, Jeff Stelling? He, it was like a year and a half, he was slating expected goal stats and things like that. And you're thinking, oh, this is telling you how the game's technically lining up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, things like expected goals and um, yeah, you know, I guess similar stuff in in different sports always get slated early on, um, mm-hmm. and it's just a, a boring cycle where someone slates something, and then it becomes it proves its value, and then it becomes in the popular domain, and then something new comes along which you think, oh well, actually, you realised with the old one that you were a bit stupid slating it because now you realise how valuable it is. But they don't. They just continue slating it and you know <laughs> and start again with the new one. Um, and yeah, that's the the thing with a lot of stats. And what I was definitely guilty as of when I was younger was just assuming this is gospel. And so if if this is said, then it's true. Um, and you should always take a healthy criticism to stuff. And you should always, um, you know, you, you should consider whether what you're saying is accurate with hindsight and with new information um and that that always should be the case but um i think there has to come a point where you can't just be blinded and critical of literally every single thing that comes in that's a bit new like at some point you just have to kind of go okay well these people have had hits with all the last ones so maybe we uh maybe we actually trust them on this one um and yeah, I, I, that can, I, I find that quite frustrating that, that we seem to always end up from the start. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's, I love that. So it's kind of like um, 
almost like gambling in a way of going just because you got it right on this many occasions the law of averages you're probably going to get it wrong so we can't take that chance to then trust you like the the evidence still needs to come every time there's not a case yeah. of this guy going like i'm trying to trying to figure a way to explain it like because i'm not not a not a half arsing situation like i don't accuse anybody of ever half arsing their professional job i have worked with people in hospitality who do half arse their job but yeah um <laughs> Yeah, so like you couldn't just go, well, he kind of does the same, player Y does kind of the same stuff player X does. And from me doing a very basic skim through, the stats are kind of similar, sign him, and I'm just going to sh shut up shop and go for Pints on a Friday, finish early. So that, that can't happen in the world of kind of situation. Yeah, I think you need to, you need to keep developing and you need to keep coming up with better better development and better ways of doing stuff um mm -hmm. and if you you know if you just stand still then the the game doesn't get you know the the, the reason we understand the game better now is because people have put effort into actually explaining it um and digging into it and doing statistical analysis on it and you don't need to know how that all works necessarily i mean it's obviously interesting if you if you're interested in that kind of stuff but um yeah what i find frustrating is is people who literally every every single time anything even vaguely new comes up turn their back on it as if as if it's somehow going to destroy the game whereas right. ultimately all stats are doing are they are they explaining a game that's already happened so um they're not gonna they're not going to completely destroy the game they're just going to help you understand what it is that's going on um so i'm i'm in favor of them basically at all times and that they should um uh but they should be treated with a kind of a healthy skepticism where you try and understand what's going on. And if you think, I'm not sure this is working how you expected it to, or I don't think this is actually displaying the information you think it is, then you have to go about adjusting and making a change. Yeah. Sweet. So you never stop learning is the base of it. It never, never stops learning. Pretty much. Yeah. 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 There's always <laughs> something new and there's some new technology and you just, just go ahead and have a look. Nice. So my final point on the serious debate that turned into a very quick agreement between the two of us. Yeah. Highlight packages. Do we believe them or is it a case of anybody can make something look good with a couple of flame emojis and a tricky camera angle? Yeah, well, as someone who does have to make players look good sometimes for if the player comes and wants to mm -hmm. get a kind of analysis done. Uh, and name them. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> you can pretty much make. So I have this. I have this theory. I haven't fully worked this out. But if you have enough stats, um, then a, a cool thing you can do is you can go. Uh, this is how many players are in total. This is how many people fulfill this one stat. This is how many people f fulfill this one and this second stat, and then keep going. And it's quite a good way of showing how a, how unique a particular player is. So like a, like example, a checklist kind of thing, like he does this much, he makes this many of that, he does this much of this. And... Exactly, yeah. So you, you could say there are 5,000 players in the database of all the leagues I've got this year. Um, there are 200 who have made at least 200 carries. There are uh, 50 who have made at least 200 carries and at least 50 tackles. There are 10 who have made at least 200 carries, 50 tackles and 7 turnovers. Uh, and then there's one who've done all of that plus kicked for 200 meters or more, yeah. say. Um, and so you can you can basically find one person in a in a big group 
by just narrowing it down like that. Um, and so, yeah, essentially, if you take that same approach, you can you can find your highlights for someone by by kind of pretending that the thing that you're really in, impressed by one thing that they do. Um, so you could say, oh, actually, the the key to winning games of rugby is um, is kicking uh, is box kicking to, for the certain hang time, right. and then you just go, okay, yeah, and he does that. Well, there's nothing going to be evidence that's true, but you can, you know, he might be top of the list of something. Um, and I kind of think that with, with highlight packages is, is that they're similar. The other thing is it's kind of the match of the dayness of 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 rugby is that if you just watch a, a package of the best bits, um, then you completely lose any of the context of anything that's come before that. It doesn't mean that they're absolutely garbage the rest of the time, but it might be that they do two things a game that are amazing that you see and not the six things a game that are actually a little bit subpar. Mm-hmm. Um which sometimes is the is the thing Russell kind of perspective really is that <laughs> people see him playing for Lassing, don't watch the games. Obviously, it's hard to watch top fourteen games in the UK. But yeah. see, don't see him play the games. Do see the highlights every now and then when he does something incredible. And although he's a fantastic player, I think he's absolutely brilliant. I think that people forget that he's not going to be that every single time he plays because you're literally watching four minutes each week where only his best two things are showing. Um, and so I, I kind of think that's one of the, one of the mistakes that, that people make is, is that looking at highlight package and then going, Oh, I, I know, I know how the player plays now. Um, whereas I think it's, it's a, it's a lot more complicated than that. I love, I love that you chose Finn Russell there. Cause he is like the pivotal of what we see with our eyes tells us he's a great player, but the stats might dictate that he's actually, our beloved six out of ten winger once again, not shitting on wingers, but our beloved six out of ten winger that's just fairly consistent, or the prime John Alomu, but you'll have ten games after that where he barely touches a four rating out of ten. Yeah, yeah, he he is. I mean, he, he's he's brilliant. I I, I feel slightly bad maybe for for picking him because I know that he's kind of an easy target. Um, yeah. but yeah, he he is excellent. Um, but people see his very best bits and assume that's his benchmark. Well, mm-hmm. it's it's not, and and it can't be for anyone. Like no one can be. I was gonna say Dupont has stinkers as well, but people absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, ev- everyone. There's no player who can live up to the four clips of them a year on Twitter doing something absolutely incredible. Um, and it's also foolish to assume that that they can. So if you watch someone, you'll watch one player doing amazing kick, and you'll go, oh, they must be an amazing kicker. Um, whereas actually. <laughs> We, we need more evidence to, yeah. to, to jump to that conclusion. Yeah, you've, you've missed the one where he shinned it and the other one where it got caught on the telecam and went backwards or something. Exactly. <laughs> or, or, the, or the one that was just decent, you know, yeah. that was just absolutely decent, which uh, which is kind of what you expect of someone who kicks, that there's going to be a spread <laughs> of very good, decent and very bad. Um, and you can't tell from highlights whether that, to using a virtue to re- repeat it, the bell curve, whether that is shifted one way or the other, whether they're actually fairly bad, but we don't see it, or whether they're actually really good, but we just don't see enough, or whether they're just middling, which is what we obviously expect. Wow. Sam, I cannot thank you enough for your time. I've enjoyed this so much. So there's only one thing left to do, and it's the only question I give people a bit of time for, and it is by far my favourite, especially when I get guests like yourself on, because it's with the rug with the rugby boys, it's a bit of a gimmick. It's whatever's in the top forty is probably coming on in some sort of club song that has a in joke that nobody knows about. Yeah. So 
for yourself, the final question before I let you get on your way and enjoy your Monday night. Final question. Big teams just won the big cup. Let's I'd like to give people a description. You've managed to get yourself into the Ineos team and you've just won the Tour de France. Yeah. You're now the second Welshman to wear that beautiful yellow jersey. Yeah. What three songs are you playing on the team bus and why are you playing those three songs to get them ready for a night out? So you as you say, you did give me a bit of time for this one. So I am offensively bad at music. Like I, I like it, I like listening to it. Um I take suggestions from wherever they come as to what I should listen to. But um I realise at the end of the year when Spotify does my top, you know, most listened to songs, um, and I think, oh god, I've got the music taste of like a kind of like an eighteen year old girl mixed with a kind of a twenty two year old indie boy from from the the early two thousands. I think me and um, you've got the same Spotify at this yeah, rate. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought rather than trying think of three meaningful songs, um, I would uh well I'll go pick one meaningful song and then two of just my top two of twenty twenty uh one top songs. So the one meaningful one was the one that my dad always used to play before he played rugby, um, which I've never, I've not really picked up on because, you know, I get, I get there quite early and by the time I'm warm, warm up, it's like an hour and 40 minutes after I was in the car. So it doesn't really, the warm up yeah. song doesn't really work. But that was um, Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. Great song. Um, so that would be up there. Um, and then the, the two from, the top two from my top songs of last year, uh, um, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly embarrassed. No, it's, oh, you uh, said I am. Oh, I thought you said ham is in this. <laughs> oh no, sorry, no, no, I, I'm slightly embarrassed about okay. these. Uh, one is "Ugly Heart" by GRL. I've which, not heard uh, that one. I must admit, uh, it's excellent bit of um, uh, ukulele in there. Lovely. I'd recommend it. Uh, and then, so that's my 18 year old girl. <laughs> and then my my twenty year old indie boy is this modern love by Block Party. Nice, so great choice. They would be my they'd be my my big three. That's a good three though. I mean, obviously not heard the middle one, but starting and end are good. And as yeah. you know, you always start off with your second best and end with the best. So the stuff in the middle is all right. Exactly, and <laughs> and, and the middle one is uh, incredibly catchy. So I would I recommend it. Sorry. Sam, yeah. last thing we need to do, we need to tell all the listeners where they can find you to keep up with all your adventures. So Twitters, Instagrams, any websites you want to plug, this now's your chance. Yeah, well, uh, the Twitter is at Sam L stands up. Um, uh, Instagram, you can go on whiteboard, there's quite a few bits and bobs on there. Um, I think that's me. I don't think that I'm going to anywhere else, but I mean, have a look on Bubby World um, for me. Yes, check the articles. They're very, very good. I did enjoy. Yeah. I think there was. I read the Bristol Bears one earlier from April. It was oh, yeah. April around that time. It was yeah, a very good. Yeah. But the way the way you write articles is actually very entertaining and very interesting. So I would I would recommend those as well. That's very kind. Yeah. Well, do as Sam says. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that's and that's it. Yeah, I think that's that's all I've got. Amazing. Well, then, all that's left to say is thank you to you guys for listening and watching again. Always a pleasure. I'm having so much fun getting season two out. Almost even more fun than season one because it was like a young kid with a new toy. Now it's a, as we were discussing, it's about getting good content and making it listenable. So as usual, all feedback is appreciated. Good comments, bad comments. If you're just going to be mean, at least make it funny because I'm just going to steal retweets off you that way because I've got thick skin, so I really don't care. Have a great time and we'll see you all next week for another episode. Thank you very much for watching. Bye.